Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. This is your host, Arden Castle, and today I'm joined by Haley Cash, Mark Fenton, and John Orr, authors of Program Infrastructure, The Key to Success, a pilot crosswalk installation to promote walkability, pedestrian safety, and physical activity in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Carrie Moline, a Virgin Islands resident and program manager at the Health Department, and they're all going to help us explore this paper, which is a project featured in HVP Supplement from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity. But before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. So Haley, will you get us started? Sure. Thanks, Arden. My name is Haley Cash. I'm a CDC contractor working as the regional non-communicable disease epidemiologist for the six U.S. affiliated Pacific Islands. And I've been providing technical support on several walkability assessments and demonstration project evaluations in the Pacific and U.S. Virgin Islands. And I'm calling in today from Honolulu, Hawaii. Hi, I'm Mark Fenton. I'm also a consultant for the CDC. I'm actually an engineer by training and work in the area of public health planning and transportation. I live in the Boston area, and I was lucky enough to work with the U.S. Virgin Islands Health Department in their Walkability Action Institute that they held back in 2017 and have been a consultant to their work since then. Good afternoon. My name is John Orr. I am a Virgin Islands Department of Health chronic disease employee. I'm a programmer data analyst. I assisted with the uh, first ever walkability uh, audit in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I lived on St. Croix for 40 years, and I'm currently uh, living in Montana, which is where I'm calling from right now. Good afternoon. My name is Carrie Moline, and I'm calling in from St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and I'm the program manager for the Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity Prevention Program at the Virgin Islands Department of Health Division of Chronic Disease and Prevention. Excellent. And thank you all for being here today. I'm super excited to jump in. This is going to be our first part of a longer conversation. But for those of us who haven't had a chance to read the paper yet, which you should all read because it is free and open access. But for those who haven't had a chance to take a peek, maybe Mark, can you give us the story from the article and specifically why is the built environment a public health concern? One of the big realizations of the past few decades around health promotion and population health is the realization that in developed countries in particular, we mostly die of the diseases associated with unhealthy lifestyle, particularly poor nutrition, tobacco use, and physical inactivity. And we've also learned that simply telling people that doesn't really make much of a difference. Telling people to not smoke, eat well, and exercise every day has not shifted population behavior. But what we do know is that if you alter the environment around those behaviors, you can actually help shift population behavior. If you can make it more encouraging and healthy foods accessible and less costly and easy to access, people will tend to eat better. If you make it hard to smoke in public places and tax cigarettes and put out really grim warnings about the costs of smoking, right, that they have an impact on behavior. 
And similarly, if we build environments where it's easier to walk and to bike and take transit, to be active as part of your daily life, where you have a nearby park or playgrounds for kids, open space, green spaces, there's very clear data now. What we do with the built environment can influence physical activity and not just exercise activity, but kind of everyday activity, whether children walk to school, whether people choose to ride their bikes or take transit to work, all the incidental physical activity that actually is really, really important in providing health benefits. Because we know if every adult could average about 150 minutes a week or think 30 minutes, five days a week, a 30 minute walk, five days a week, it would reduce risk for cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, osteoporosis, clinical depression, dementia in old age, a growing list of cancers. In other words, moderate daily physical activity has huge health benefits. Yet all of the evidence suggests that a very small percentage of American adults, including in the U.S. Virgin Islands, actually meet those recommendations, maybe uh, numbers on the order of 10% or fewer of adults meeting those guidelines when you look at objectively measured data. So the bottom line is this whole initiative was an attempt to work with the experts and stakeholders in the Virgin Islands to try to help create built environments where it's safer to walk and to bike and take transit and be physically active as part of daily life. That's fantastic. I am loving that you're talking about how health education when not coupled with environmental change is not going to result in behavioral change and that this environmental change doesn't need to be huge. It can be incidental. It's these small decisions and public health is all about making the healthy decision the easiest one. And so I really appreciate that acknowledgement of where we might be going wrong and how we can be helping folks more. And so Maybe this is a little bit more of a deeper dive, but in other parts of the country, how have health departments gotten involved? Is this, as you're mentioning, we know that there are these gaps here. How do we know if we're actually meeting those requirements or making health easy? So I'm a subject matter expert for the CDC on this very topic and work with other recipients across the country in their HOP, which is the High Obesity Program, and REACH, which is Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health, and SPAN, the State Physical Activity and Nutrition Program. So those are three big CDC programs that I have the, the privilege of, of working with recipients across the country. And what we're really trying to do, one of the fundamental things is connect health departments with planning departments, transportation departments, the business community, the educational community, so think schools and universities, build truly interdisciplinary teams, community groups, neighborhood associations, social justice organizations. In other words, the more we create these interdisciplinary working groups and make clear the kinds of changes that can make it safer to walk and bike, the more successful we are. And that's where uh, why a guy like me, who's an engineer, can be useful because we can talk about the physical infrastructure. How can you add a sidewalk and where? And how do you design bicycle lanes and, and build pathways on old rail corridors and things like that? So that's going on all over the United States. And it was very clear that the territory was ready for that work. And indeed, the first thing that was done was an, what was called an EPI-8 assessment of the walkability of the territory. And that sort of set the table because we saw really discouraging results when the team went out and John was part of this, when they created a team to go out and actually do assessments of the walkability of their communities. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when we heard that we had been awarded an EPI-8, and we hadn't asked for it. It was just sort of, I'll say it was thrust upon us. The, the previous chronic disease director and I you know, found out about it and we said, okay, what's it for? And they said, walkability. So neither of us had ever heard of walkability. And so uh, did, did we do a deep dive on the internet to better understand what walkability entailed? Well, not so much. So unfortunately we spent like days inventorying all the places that we knew people would walk to the airport 
there'd be groups of people walking up and down around doing laps around the airport, places all over the island. So we inventoried those and then we pretty much found out later on that it wasn't really about having places to walk, but it was having the opportunity to walk to the places that you need to go or you want to go. So we really started out totally in the dark about what walkability was. And uh, thanks to Mark and the, and the other folks, we really got a, a good education, a quick education on, on what it all meant. I think that that is a great example, John, of how we're talking about breaking down these silos between health resources and planning, where we all have so much to learn. And if we aren't immediately connected to it, then we have to lean on our friends who can explain these new terms to us and start this evaluation. And Haley, I'd love to learn a little bit more. We heard that there were some discouraging results, but the health department and CDC collaborated on an assessment of the territory's walkability as sort of a baseline assessment. So how did the islands fare? And is it currently very walkable or bike friendly? Sure. Well, there is a very comprehensive report available if anybody's interested, but I'll just highlight some of the key findings. Overall, there were some significant challenges found regarding walkability. The first being that there was quite a low prevalence of sidewalks. Only about 11% of the street segments that were audited had any kind of sidewalks. There was also a low prevalence of marked crosswalks at street crossings, where only about 6% of street crossings had a, any kind of marked crosswalk, and of those, only about half had high visibility. Additionally, there were no bike lanes identified anywhere on any of the street segments throughout the U.S. Virgin Islands, and fewer than 1% of the street segments had any kind of signage indicating that the roads should be shared with bikes. So overall, very little support for biking throughout the U.S. Virgin Islands. Additionally, only about half of the street segments that were audited had any kind of lighting, and only 2% had ample lighting. So again, a pretty significant barrier to walkability throughout the U.S. Virgin Islands. And then the other barriers that were noted throughout the USVI was the presence of stray dogs and large amounts of litter in some areas, which certainly discourage walkability. So as Mark mentioned earlier, overall, some discouraging findings. Yes, it was interesting because when we looked at the audit worksheets when they were sent to us and we discovered what we were going to be doing, we basically said, you can save a lot of time. I'm not saying we we're going to score zero, but we were going to be pretty close to it. We pretty much lacked most of the items that support and encourage walkability, as was just mentioned, as Haley just said. So we pretty much knew that it was going to come out very low, but it was great because once you do that baseline and you actually walk around and see the things that you're seeing, then you understand where the improvement really needs to be. And I think one of the other benefits to the audit itself, other than just the data, is that awareness. So with these audits, we often involve community groups who are going out and doing the segment audits, and it raises a lot of awareness of folks and really gets them thinking about walkability in the community, which can be really powerful. So I think that's a huge added benefit other than telling us, you know, some of the information we kind of already know. I'd go a step further and say it's also was helpful in advocacy work. You know, one of the things that came out of this work eventually was an attempt to get a complete streets policy passed in the territory. Complete streets is a fundamental policy approach that says every time we touch a road, we have to take into account all users, pedestrians, bicyclists, transit, and motor vehicles. And a street's not complete unless you consider all four. And USVI did not have such a policy. And 
evidence, that kind of data, and Haley's repeated this process in a number of the other territories where we've worked, it's really powerful data to be able to take to elected officials and you know decision makers when you can show them, hey, this is a statistical sampling. This is not just opinion. Here's the evidence about what's available, what the infrastructure is like, and where the opportunity, to John's point, for improvement, where that opportunity lies. Definitely. I'm hearing not only was there a low prevalence of opportunities for pedestrians and bikes, but also low signage. And then when combined with the safety concerns, it was really no surprise what the baseline was. But when combining this baseline in that data there, combining it with the awareness generated some stakeholders. And with that stakeholder involvement, as we're pushing forward and forward and forward, we get that advocacy and actually able to garner change. And so given the fact that these baselines weren't necessarily a surprise. Did the Department of Health see working on walkability as a natural or obvious part of their work before the Walkability Institute? And do they consider it a big part of their work now? I think I can answer that question. So beforehand, like I said, it was sort of an unknown thing to us. So we hadn't really thought about it too much. But after we, obviously, after we did the audit and we had the, the summit of the Walkability Institute, opinions changed. So definitely now, I mean, a good example of this is I look at the, uh, I mean, I'm a data guy, so I'm not clinical, but I've always been told that the pillars of, as Mark said, the pillars of uh, chronic disease or, or chronic disease management are physical activity, nutrition, and tobacco use. So we get a lot of funding for tobacco programs. We get a lot of funding for diabetes programs, but we never really had funding to address physical activity and nutrition. And so it's just one of the factors of health departments is that often you have to put a lot of your effort to where you get the funding because your funders expect that. So there was obviously a gap and a need. And we actually filled that need with Carrie. Carrie Moline came in to fill the nutrition and physical activity gap. And so that's part, a good part of it as a result of the work we did with walkability. I definitely agree. I think that just in, since I've been in the Department of Health, which has only been a little bit over a year, I think that we've been kind of shifting more of our approaches to a more preventive and physical activity and nutrition, but more specifically, we're talking about physical activity-based approach to preventing chronic disease. And I think that's part of what I've been trying to do with my activities that I do is try and change like some of the cultural perceptions that we have here. Because I think that sometimes in the Virgin Islands, we kind of look at physical activity, specifically walkability as something that maybe can't be achieved. And I think there's a little bit of like an attitude about like, we're not going to be able to change things because like, look at these roads or it's too hot to be walking places or it's just the landscape doesn't make sense for it. But I think it is something that we're trying to instill, like how can you a little bit more physical activity in your daily life? And maybe that doesn't look like running a marathon. Maybe that just looks like walking after work or something like that, which is something that we're trying to do is create a bit more of a cultural change, which I think can actually be very impactful in creating a physical change as well, because you have to make people feel like it's possible. And then once people feel like it's possible to create that change, we can then have streets that people will walk on and more people will rally behind having those new sidewalks built and new places to walk built. Absolutely, Carrie. I love that your position sort of marks an institutional change from the health department. And as John was saying that we sort of follow the funding, 
but I really appreciate your preventive approach to chronic disease and shifting these cultural norms. Shifting these cultural norms means that we need to change the perspective of the public health department because these norms are sort of reinforced by the public health department's priorities. And so your position is a fantastic explanation of when we put money in funding, as we go back into that, as John is saying, when we put our money in funding there, then we can change these norms and make it possible and help folks imagine. And so how did the Institute lead to the development of demonstration projects? I think that your role is a great demonstration of sort of this change, but what else are we seeing and who is participating? So during the, uh, the first meetings we had, we had some really good cross-sectional discussions uh, during that Walkability Institute and in our breakout sessions. So in, among other things, a number of participants identified areas on all three islands where traffic and road conditions were clearly a danger to pedestrians. So in a number of instances, people brought up, how about uh, some kind of a crosswalk or something? So we all kind of focused on where we might be able to put uh, crosswalks, and that was what led to a number of the demonstration projects that we conducted across the islands. One of the ways we did that was we actually did a walk audit. We went out as a group and walked during the Institute and actually experienced some of those environments, which is really a telling undertaking because it's not unlike when they did the assessment, you know, to get out and actually experience the environment as a pedestrian, you, you realize your vulnerability. Geez, how would I get across here? If I want to go to that store, but this is where I stepped off of the van that I rode over here, how am I going to get over there? And indeed, the demonstration project that's reported in the article grew out of that. We did the walk audit. They decided this would be a location to do that. John was instrumental along with the partners, by the way, in the Department of Public Works, who were really, really important because they had to you know, work with the contractor. They actually went out and painted the crosswalk, put some pedestrian crossing signs in. And the health department helped facilitate getting University of Virgin Islands students to actually collect data, which was you know, I, I still tell the story of how this data showed the changes that occurred as a result of this crosswalk being installed. Because before it was there, people crossed all over the place in front of this shopping mall area. And immediately afterwards, if I'm remembering correctly, Haley, you'll correct me on this. I think it was about three weeks afterwards, as few as only 16% of pedestrians crossing were using the crosswalk. But by a year later, that number was closer to 60%. So they had begun to adopt the use of this. And there was a dramatic reduction in speed, as much as a 25% reduction in speed through this area, because now there were signs and pedestrian crossing markings and so on. So those are really, those findings are concrete and, you know, measurable, but it talks about, again, this cultural shift, like, okay, I guess I could walk to that store now that I feel like it's safe enough to do so. Yeah, the evaluation was a really interesting project. You know, we kind of asked ourselves, is there a way that we can quantitatively measure the effectiveness of this crosswalk installation, which was a really fun project. And like Mark mentioned, we worked with the University of the Virgin Islands and the students actually volunteered for some of this data collection. But yeah, so the things we were looking at is the time the pedestrians actually spent in the road. Because we know, you know, we want them in the road for the shortest amount of time while crossing the street. We don't want them, you know, crossing one lane and sitting in the middle of traffic and then waiting for the other car to cross. Instead, we want them to be able to, to get across the road quickly and effectively. The other thing that we measured was vehicle speed. So uh, we were looking at the cars approaching the crosswalk before and after installation. And then finally, we we're just looking at the number and percentage of pedestrians who were actually utilizing the crosswalk. So very briefly, you know, what we found is that pedestrians spent fewer seconds crossing the roads after the installation. 
Again, this is because, you know, before the installation, folks were kind of jumping into the road, crossing one lane, and then they were waiting for the car moving in the other direction to stop. And once that crosswalk was installed, they were able to just consistently cross the street. So it actually sped up the crossing and allowed them to spend a, a less amount of time in the street. We also found that the average vehicle speed decreased from 24 miles per an hour to 18 miles per an hour. So really significantly decreased the traffic, the speed of traffic on that road. And then finally, as, as Mark mentioned, you know, right after we installed the crosswalk, we saw that we went from obviously 0% of pedestrians using a crosswalk because there was no crosswalk to about 13%, you know, shortly after installation. But then when we evaluated the same crosswalk over a year after installation, we found that over half of pedestrians were using the crosswalk. So if we put it there, people will use it. And that will, of course, increase the safety of those pedestrians. That is such a fantastic example of making the healthy option the easiest option. And John, did you have more to add here? Yeah, I was going to say, even from a safety standpoint, I, I went out there before we decided to, we were convinced we were going to put it in there and watch pedestrian behavior. And folks were crossing, I mean, crossing all over the place were there, but not only walking straight across the road, they were walking diagonally to spend even more time in the road. And it was just crazy. So all the improvements that were made, I mean, they're measurable improvements, which is nice, especially the speed reduction. So, you know, we put up the signs and, and even when we went, it was part of the remeasurement and you could just tell the, you could make eye contact with the drivers and you knew they were watching, looking at the signs and watching what was going on, which was impressive. It was one of the kind of side stories of this is we really kind of thought about a lot of areas where we could possibly put a crosswalk. And this one's obviously a good selection because there's a lot of pedestrian traffic around there. It's our, our biggest, our main shopping center. But we also, interestingly enough, one of the major modes of transportation is taxi van. And so people stand on the side of the roads often as well, just standing there half in the road, half out of the road, because we don't have a lot of areas where you can pull over to pick up your fares from the taxi vans. So folks would cross the road to, to wait for taxi vans, standing on both sides of the roads, and just a dangerous situation. But uh, one of the areas we looked at, you know, this is kind of a sad story in a sense, is that we identified another area that really, really needed a crosswalk. And it's in a very, very dark area. So in order really to do that effectively, and they get a lot of traffic in the evenings there, um, there's a restaurant across the street, we would have had to really invest in putting in some sort of traffic light, some flashing lights or something like that. And this demonstration project didn't allow for that kind of thing. But so we kind of hemmed and hawed about it and decided, you know, that wasn't one we could do. And I'd say it about a year later, though, someone, a pedestrian was uh, struck by a vehicle and, and killed. So, I mean, it just, so, so it increases your awareness in a sense of where these things are needed. And one of the things I wanted to add, it was interesting that, you know, Mark points out the collaboration between the different departments. When I first got to the Department of Health, first few years I was there, I never heard of anybody collaborating with public works, never talked to anybody in public safety, never talked to anybody in parks and recreation, planning and natural resources, any of them. And shortly after our kind of our involvement with this, we began to talk to all of them. So that was a really great outcome of, of this effort. Can I ask, Carrie, can you elaborate on, are you continuing relationships like that, those cross-disciplinary relationships? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if so, I'd ask you to build on that. So my role lately, specifically with walkability, which is now under UBI's Caribbean Exploratory Research Center, 
is essentially that I helped with the production of the action plan. There were five priorities that were established the year before at the Walkability Summit, and those priorities then we broke them out into five different work groups. And I, me and the director of the Chronic Disease and Prevention Division worked together on leading one of the work groups, which was the one that was specifically focused on changing cultural norms around active transportation. And so that is what we're currently working on is essentially turning the partnerships that we made through that. And I specifically was working with the Highway Association a lot, as well as a few nonprofits, specifically Virgin Islands Trail Alliance, which is, I think, a St. Croix-based organization that focuses on highlighting different trails around St. Croix, because that's a little bit more of a hiking community there. But they also talk about different, like, walking safe areas. And then, of course, the Highway Association was, of course, involved. And we had those partnerships and we used those partnerships in order to talk about how we could use our information that we all had to promote safety to pedestrian safety, specifically pedestrian and bicyclist safety to both pedestrians and also to drivers and talk about how we could promote a space that is safer for pedestrians to the drivers who are actually the ones who can change their own behaviors to make things more safe. So that's the last thing that we've been working on, and we're thinking about different ways that we can expand that. So we're just seeing what the next steps are, and hopefully we're going to have a little bit more of a concrete plan, and that will involve some more structural changes, but my group specifically was focused on the cultural norms. That is fantastic, and to sort of wrap my head around everything that's been said, I'm loving that part of this research involved literal boots on the ground, like experiencing what folks were walking and seeing and witnessing outside of the mall and that we had this actual measurable change, which involves some pretty creative ways to measure safety with quantitative data. But as we found that measurable change takes time, but that time can be as little as one year. Fantastic turnaround of creating opportunity and watching that and actually by taking those baselines, being able to watch this program grow. Additionally, I'm hearing that we're able to change not only the norms of pedestrians, but also drivers, while folks might be used to looking out for pedestrians near the edges of the streets. Now we've created these spaces where they can expect to see folks crossing a little bit safer and spending less time in the road. And then also that if we want to increase visibility, like lighting and things like that, it's going to require more connections and collaboration and planning to prevent future losses, like what was experienced outside of that restaurant. But as Carrie was saying, fantastic, this is already sort of happening. We've got more formal relationships that are able to combine data in order to increase safety for all folks out on the road. So I love where this has gone. And we've kind of talked through a lot of different places. And so I want to open it up as we close out, we talked about the complete streets policy a little bit. Mark mentioned this and helped define it. So I want to open it up so everyone can have their final thoughts. So I'm guessing, Mark, you're going to want to chat about that. But whether you want to talk about what else needs to happen, whether complete streets is sufficient, whether you want to talk about what our future is for public health departments or what we envision our role in the future. So I want to help imagine with you all what we see the future looking like. So I'll let each of you have a moment and help us imagine. So Mark, I can see that you're excited. So we'll start with you. 
I would say working with the Virgin Islands has been a, a really tremendous experience for me. And not least of all, because we did a physical intervention, it wasn't just trying to teach people, but then work with them through the technical assistance program, through the actual intervention, meaningful, objective data analysis, both baseline, right? That FE8 assessment that said, here's what the context is. And then this assessment of the demonstration projects, which is why I was really enthusiastic, by the way, about writing the paper, because I believe as we do this work around the country, and we are, we need to continue to be willing to do this objective data collection and measurement because otherwise we get people's opinions. Well, I, th I think it's safer or maybe it's not. But some of the kinds of interventions we sometimes recommend, for example, the placing of bicycle lanes, you'll have people react to that. And sometimes they'll say, oh, it's going to cause delays or it's actually more dangerous. It's going to invite bikes onto the roadway. Well, that's all opinion. We can go collect actual data and learn about what's working and what isn't, and even adjust the intervention accordingly. That's what we do in public health all the time. We need to do that around the built environment. So it was great to be able to work with Haley and colleagues to think through those tools. I'm now using them in other communities around the country. That's a really important lesson. That's why I thought the paper was important. I want people to replicate this approach of intervention and measurement. Let me also say, I do sincerely believe this work helps drive the passage of the complete streets policy. I want to give props to the AARP, the chapter of the AARP in the Virgin Islands, as well as VITAL, the Virgin Islands Trails Alliance that Carrie alluded to, were both instrumental in working with the legislature and the territory to pass that complete streets policy and to get the governor to sign it. But they did so in 2022. And so now the law of the land is when they're working on roads, they have to think about all four users, pedestrians, bicyclists, transit, motor vehicles. It doesn't mean you put a bike lane or a sidewalk everywhere. It means you always ask the question, what's the appropriate treatment for here? That's what complete streets says, and they're doing it. And I now have coined a term that really grew out of my work in the Virgin Islands, which I call the pilots to policy approach. Use pilots and demonstration projects, help learn from them, show that this can work, prove viability, and then help that drive policy change, systems level change. So it's not just a one-off. We don't just get one or two crosswalks or some bike lanes out of the deal. We get a systems change. So I'm really impressed with the work that's been done in the territory, and I'm delighted that they've got a position like Carrie's now that's going to make sure that work continues to happen with public health's involvement. I would agree with that assessment. Often when you have these little things you can do to make improvements, everybody gets excited and then it dies away because the longer term types of things take a long term, long time to see and to see the change and see the benefit. But even after all these years, I still hear people talking about mixed use. So mixed use is one of the things we don't really do well in the Virgin Islands. So in order to do that, you have to change the way you're thinking and you have to actually build your environment that way. So that takes a lot of time. And so in a lot of these times, issues like that or things like that will just die away. People will think, ah, it's, it's too difficult to take too long. But people are still talking about it, talking about complete streets, talking about mixed use. So always worry about sustainability, but I, I see it here. I see this thing as being, as, as having changed the way people think, which is what you have to do to implement long-term change. Yeah. And just to add on to that, well, first of all, I just want to say kudos to the Virgin Islands team for, you know, not only conducting all of this great work and implementing their demonstration projects, but really thinking about that evaluation piece that Mark's already spoken about. You know, if you are going to work on walkability projects or or construct demonstration projects, I really encourage folks to think about how they can collect that quantitative data 
to measure the effectiveness of those projects. Because as Mark mentioned, you know, it's one thing to go to decision makers and the powers that be and say, hey, you know, this was a great project, but it's another thing to say, hey, we have the data to show that, you know, this has actually improved the safety of residents in your jurisdiction. A few years ago, I went to a cancer conference in Vancouver. And it was interesting because as I went out onto the streets that night, I was actually amazed at how walkable that city was. I never would have thought of that before. I never would have considered it. I never would have, it never would have entered my mind. But I, I did a lot of walking while I was there for the three or four days during the conference. And I, it was amazing the places you could go and how easily you could go there. So uh, it's, like I said, even me, it, it changed the way I think about things, which is the way you got to really approach change in general. It's getting people to think differently. I definitely think that our work in walkability has definitely shown to me, but I think it just highlights how much I think health departments that specifically are trying to prevent chronic disease really have to play a role in a lot of different aspects of government, a lot of different aspects of life, because walkability, it might be, do your kids take a bus to school? Do your kids get driven to school or do they walk to school? Or do you walk to work or can you walk to go get groceries or something like that? So a lot of people don't think of them as health promotion, but we as health promoters have to get into that. We have to play a part in that. And I think that that's something that a lot of health departments and not just in the Virgin Islands should definitely be thinking about in a lot of different ways and a lot of different aspects of life because that's just for physical activity. I mean, if you think about things like smoking and nutrition, there's different other parts of government that health needs to be involved in, in order to make those big changes. Absolutely. I am so in awe to be sharing space with you all. I'm hearing that when introducing these new changes to the built environment or any public health changes, it's so crucial to have objective measures to prove or even see that it's working to create systems level changes that are able to change policies that require us to have at least quantitative, but you know, mixed methods is also great, but having that data and the specific things that you can point to that we really are able to affect change. And this change has to happen with changing the way that people think. This program was successful in that, and that's why we're able to see this long-term change and that health departments still have this obligation to involve health in all aspects of people's lives. And that can be just down to the nitty gritties of the everyday transportation of how you're getting to work and to school and the places that you live, thrive, and learn. And so I think that you've done a fantastic job here, and I'm so thankful to have shared space with you all. I really appreciate all of your knowledge. And so thank you all. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. It was wonderful. Thanks so much for having us, Arden. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. It was great to chat with everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.